Umi San Productions. Join us on the podcast that delves deep into the shadows of the unknown. We explore the enigmatic and often spine-tingling world of the supernatural, where everyday people share their personal encounters with the unexplained. From chilling ghostly apparitions to elusive cryptids, from UFO sightings and encounters with extraterrestrial beings, to the age-old battle between angels and demons, and even the darkest tales of the macabre, we've got it all. Each episode will bring you real stories, unfiltered and uncensored, as we explore the uncharted territories of your deepest fears and curiosities. So, buckle up, listeners, because this podcast will push the boundaries of reality as we know it. Get ready to question everything you thought you knew. Your journey into the unknown begins now. Welcome to My Paranormality. Manifestation of the Shadow Beings I don't really know how else to start this by stating that I have been experiencing this phenomenon since a very young age, years before I ever experimented with drugs or got access to the internet. There are five incidents I can remember to date that have happened over the span of multiple years. It almost seems as if the older I've gotten, the less these encounters have frequented. The first incident, I was no more than four to five years old, and I had stayed up past my bedtime while I was laying in bed, playing with this toy. I think I was starting to doze off because I was growing weary of my toy. I had leaned over the edge of my bed and placed the toy on the ground next to my bed. This is where everything went wrong. I literally watched this toy slowly slide under my bed and into the darkness. To this day, I have no recollection of where that toy went but it was gone. It was around the same time frame I had experienced my second encounter. Again, at night, I had been laying in bed and I just got this really odd feeling that I wasn't alone. That's when I saw something that was way darker than my room was. It appeared to be some sort of sphere, or maybe it was humanoid-like. All I know is I got scared and tried to hide my face under my covers, and my covers were yanked off me in rapid succession. Everything else is blank as I blacked out and have no recollection of what happened. The third encounter I had gotten a little bit older, somewhere between 10 to 15 years old if I remember correctly. I was staying at my grandmother's house. I don't like to entertain the belief of the supernatural, but for the sake of this story, I will inform you that my grandmother fully believes her home is haunted to this day. I had woke up out of a dead sleep to the most god-awful loudest screeching sound I have ever heard. I couldn't move a muscle, not even to scream for help. I couldn't move my eyes, but 
I could see out of the corners of my pupils. What I saw this time definitely had a humanoid-like shape, but it defied physics. It was bouncing from wall to wall, ceiling to floor, accompanied by that god-awful sound. I want to say I somehow regained control of myself and was able to alert my grandparents, but again, I quite frankly cannot remember. What are these things I'm seeing and experiencing? I've heard of them being called shadow people, so what are they? The concept of shadow beings is deeply rooted in various cultures, mythologies, and paranormal beliefs. These entities are often described as dark, shadowy figures that appear in peripheral vision, especially during moments of sleep paralysis, meditation, or other altered states of consciousness. The lore surrounding shadow beings is diverse, and different cultures and belief systems have their own interpretations and names for these entities. Shadow people are often described as dark, humanoid figures that appear as shadows, lacking distinct facial features. They are typically perceived as malevolent or ominous entities. The term shadow people is a broad and general label used in contemporary paranormal and supernatural discussions. It doesn't have specific cultural or historical origins, but is a popular term in modern paranormal lore. Sometimes shadow beings are associated with the phenomenon known as sleep paralysis, where individuals experience a sense of immobility along with the perception of a malevolent presence, often depicted as an old hag or shadowy figure. This phenomenon has been documented across cultures, with various interpretations and cultural explanations. In some paranormal and UFO-related discussions, shadow beings are considered interdimensional entities that can move between different planes of existence. Now let's get back to my next incident. I was about 17 years old at the time and staying at my mother's house. Because of fear, I always slept with my back against a wall ever since these past events. One night, I must have rolled over to get comfy or something. I just remember waking up, staring at the wall and not being able to move. I couldn't directly see a single figure, but I remember getting visions of my downstairs dining room and what appeared to be a whole bunch of shadow people crawling out of the ground underneath my dining room table. I believe they were trying to make their way upstairs to take me underground with them. I believe they were led by a female humanoid. Was it a dream or did this incident really happen? The last encounter happened a handful of years later. I had moved into an apartment and was living alone. I had a two-bedroom apartment with both bedrooms on the second floor. I didn't own a lot, so the bedrooms were left vacant for an extended period of time. I remember passing out on the couch in the downstairs living room and waking up to this feeling of terrible dread. I had an ominous feeling all around me. I had to seek out the source. I went upstairs and noticed both bedroom doors were wide open with the lights on, and this feeling of suffocation only got worse as I entered these rooms to shut the lights off and close the doors. As I entered each room, I was surprised at not witnessing who or what opened both doors and turned on both lights on. Shortly after, I woke up on the couch and everything returned to normal again. I don't know if I dreamt that whole scenario as well or what. There have been multiple other shorter incidents not as notable as these so I wouldn't classify all of these as sleep paralysis because some may have been nightmares. One thing I will say is, the mind can be a hell of a bitch. Reptilian in the Midst About a year ago, I was living on the East Coast, Delaware, to be more specific. 
Having grown up in rural Indiana, I was a bit out of my element, but extremely excited to travel and broaden my horizons. Had no idea about reptilian cults or the Anunnaki, nor did I really care for any conspiracies at this point. Anyways, I had just rented a cheap apartment and found a night shift job at a nearby restaurant named Chipotle. The dinner rush was usually around 7 to 8 p.m., and it would get fairly busy. Anyways, one night while busy getting my burrito-making skills on and popping, I happened to look up and glance out of the store window. There she was, walking down the sidewalk. A six-foot African woman in a regular sort of dress that was elegant and was pastel olive in color. Light-skinned, almost like caramel, her hair looked as if it was a cheap wig that was shoulder-lengthed and frayed at the ends, but oddly pinned exactly straight against her head like the wind outside would have no effect. The gloss, way too shiny to be real. Nothing too odd as stranger things appear around every corner in Delaware. So I continue making the food orders. All of a sudden, I'm startled to the core by a flash of light that caught me off guard. Possibly a customer took a picture of me or something. As I'm looking around in a frustrated panic, the thought of, I've never been very photogenic. Nor did I want my photo taken by some stranger, but to my surprise, no one was around with a camera or even paying any attention to me. The customers waiting for food were already down the line trying to pay their tab, which I had absolutely no recollection of even finishing their orders. I stood there for a moment, trying to recollect myself. Did I just lose time? Was I really just not paying attention? Is there something wrong with my short-term memory? Did anyone else see that flashing light? What the hell? My manger abruptly snapped me out of my moment of personal crisis by asking me to grab some steak from the walk-in. I do as instructed, and as I'm heading back up to the front of the store, I see the tall lady making her way through the front door of the restaurant. However, there was something off about her, just couldn't put my finger on it. Having a closer look at her appearance changed the whole perspective. My previous view of this person didn't initially reveal that she was freaking ripped. The kind of musculature that doesn't look right on a woman, I'm talking as muscular as can be. The skin on her face looked rough, dry, sort of bumpy, but it wasn't acne, and her face was elongated, meaning the jawline was fine and chiseled in a downward slope. At this point, my conclusion is that maybe she just loves the gym and that I was judging her appearance harshly when I'm in no position to place myself above others. I smile and greet her by asking her how she was. Suddenly, she turned towards me and looked up, experiencing an unfamiliar yet comfortable buzzing all around me. Like cicadas buzzing in the fall, my perspective of everything I thought would change. The piercing black eyes, including the pupils and retinas, every part of this being's eyes were black. Morphing before me, this woman's face turned from bumpy to an almost plastic, glossy-looking smooth material, and her skin turned into a pale-ish gray-blue color. Goosebumps immediately took over the back of my neck and arms. That steady gaze into my soul would seem to go on for days, as if I was being robbed of my internal privacy, depleting the very fiber of my being, seeming as if she was reading the written version of my own consciousness. Whomever this was, they knew the entirety of my existence and could put an end to it in a second, and it was made very clear without saying a single freaking word. She was telepathically forcing me to understand how insignificant we are as humans, how the human experience is one of the lowest tiers of consciousness. All of this happened within seconds, the closest thing I can compare to what she had me visualize would be a snippet of a DMT trip. 
It had a mischievous undertone. I felt like I owed her something. I just couldn't break eye contact. Was my brain deceiving me? Maybe I really was having a stroke. Was I in some sort of stasis or coma, and this was a sick dream? This couldn't be real. I felt vulnerable for the first time in years. She had some kind of sick power over me, draining my essence. She was still walking towards me all the while, not looking away. Still in shock, never had I felt so powerless to anything. I remember feeling the weight of my body would soon make my knees buckle and I would collapse onto the floor. In my mind, I was begging her repeatedly, pleading for her to stop this, whatever was happening. She grinned a twisted, horrific smile, extremely unnatural. Then, her teeth like something out of a movie, looked clean but were shaped like thick spikes that fit together, reminiscent of a shark. She stopped directly in front of me, tilted her head to her right and in an innocent sort of manner. The pupils shrank back down and suddenly she morphed back into a normal state. I can only describe it as if she had just sucked another face onto hers in a millisecond, like controlling atoms on a level we could not fathom, turning them into whatever design they wanted to at will. Before I knew it, the buzzing was gone, her skin bumpy as had been before, eyes still a really dark shade, but the proper shapes. The opportunity to see her teeth again was gone, but I'm sure they looked somewhat like a regular person's set of teeth. Overall, just a strange-looking woman in front of me, still intimidated, still skeptical of what my eyes, ears, and brain had just witnessed, I was still completely drained. I had no energy. My soul felt hollow felt pointless and so immensely confused. I walked to the back of the store while one of my co-workers brought food to this strange being as if nothing ever happened. Like everything was fine, I hear this person's voice say something about lettuce, and I realize it's not anything close to the voice I was interpreting in my head. I lied to my manager about a sudden family emergency and left the restaurant. A disciplinary write-up for leaving in the middle of a shift was in my future. But I had to get out of there. Never saw this being, lady, whatever it was again. For many months, I questioned my sanity and reality. I knew I couldn't tell anyone. I began to fall into a six-month depression that I've recently fully recovered from. Mentally, I'm doing better than ever, but I constantly question what I saw that day, what I heard and felt. Who was she or it? And why was I the recipient of this incident? Why did this being choose me instead of any other person in the restaurant that night? Was I just hallucinating? What was this being? A reptilian? Has anyone else ever experienced anything of the sort? I guess I'll never find out. Who and what are the Archons? Archons, in the context of extraterrestrial beings, have a rich history deeply embedded in ancient Gnostic traditions. The term Archon is derived from the Greek, meaning ruler or lord. In Gnostic cosmology, Archons are considered malevolent entities associated with a lower material realm that impedes humanity's spiritual progress. The Nag Hammadi Library, a collection of Gnostic texts discovered in 1945, contains references to Archons as rulers of this lower illusory reality exploiting human ignorance and emotions. These entities are known by various names in different cultural and religious traditions. In some texts, they are referred to as rulers of the cosmos or archontics. This diversity of names reflects the adaptability of the archon concept across different mythologies and belief systems. 
Descriptions of archons in Gnostic texts are often symbolic and metaphorical. They are portrayed as powerful, malevolent forces that keep humanity trapped in the material world, hindering spiritual enlightenment. The depiction of archons varies, with some texts describing them as formless, parasitic entities feeding off human energy, while others represent them as monstrous beings, symbolizing the obstacles preventing spiritual evolution. Modern interpretations of archons often intertwine with UFO lore, where enthusiasts speculate about their involvement in alleged extraterrestrial encounters. The connection between archons and extraterrestrial beings is largely speculative, as mainstream science does not support the idea of malevolent extraterrestrial entities manipulating human affairs. Tactics attributed to archons in the context of enslaving humanity often involve psychological and spiritual manipulation. Some theorists propose that archons influence human thought patterns, encouraging negative emotions and fostering ignorance to maintain control. These entities are believed to feed off the lower vibrational energies produced by fear, anger and despair. The concept of spiritual entrapment by archons aligns with Gnostic views of a false reality created to distract and manipulate human consciousness. Examples of recent human witness experiences tied to the archon concept often revolve around accounts of alleged alien abductions. Individuals reporting these experiences describe encounters with beings perceived as hostile or manipulative, featuring elements such as mind control, experimentation, and the implantation of foreign substances. The Travis Walton abduction case in 1975 gained attention. Travis Walton's abduction experience is one of the most well-known and controversial cases in the history of alleged alien encounters. The incident took place on November 5, 1975, in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake, Arizona. Walton, along with a group of logging crew members, claimed to have witnessed a UFO while driving home from work. When Walton approached the unidentified craft, he was allegedly struck by a beam of light and disappeared. The initial accounts provided by the crew members described their shock and fear at witnessing Walton being hit by the beam. Fearing for their lives, they left the scene but returned shortly afterward to find no sign of Walton or the UFO. Law enforcement and the community initially treated the incident with skepticism, suspecting foul play or a hoax. Travis Walton reappeared five days later, disoriented and wearing the same clothes as when he disappeared. His recollection of the events during his absence was detailed in his book, The Walton Experience, published in 1978, and later adapted into the film Fire in the Sky in 1993. According to Walton, he found himself on board a metallic, disc-shaped craft after being struck by the beam of light. He described encountering beings he believed to be extraterrestrial, resembling typical depictions of aliens with large heads and eyes. Walton claimed to have undergone medical examinations and communication attempts with these beings during his time aboard the UFO. While the Travis Walton case has gained attention and sparked debates within the UFO community, it has also faced skepticism. Some critics argue that the entire event may have been an elaborate hoax or a product of misperception. Despite the controversy, Walton has consistently maintained the authenticity of his experience. The Betty and Barney Hill abduction in 1961 is another significant case where the Hills reported being taken aboard a UFO and subjected to medical examinations. The Betty and Barney Hill abduction is one of the earliest and most widely publicized cases of claimed alien abduction in modern UFO lore. The incident occurred on the night of September 19th through 20th, 1961, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Betty and Barney Hill, 
an interracial couple, reported an encounter with a UFO and alien beings during their journey home from a vacation in Canada. The Hills described observing a strange craft in the night sky, which appeared to be following their car. Fearing for their safety, they stopped the vehicle and claimed to have observed humanoid figures through binoculars inside the UFO. Overcome with panic, they quickly drove away. Upon arriving home, the Hills realized that their journey had taken longer than expected, leading them to suspect that something unusual had occurred during the time they couldn't account for. Both experienced symptoms of anxiety and insomnia in the following days. Undergoing hypnosis separately in 1964, Betty and Barney Hill recounted a harrowing tale. They described being taken aboard the UFO, where they underwent medical examinations and communicated with non-human entities. The beings were described as humanoid, with grayish skin, large wraparound eyes, and slit-like mouths. The Hills case gained widespread attention after a Boston newspaper covered their story in 1965. It was subsequently adapted into a book, The Interrupted Journey, by John G. Fuller, and a made-for-TV movie, The UFO Incident, in 1975. Other similar cases in history are The Etheric Envoys, where in the 1990s, a group of individuals reported encounters with ethereal beings known as etheric envoys. These beings, similar to Arkans, were described as energy entities existing on a higher plane of existence. Witnesses claimed to have experienced telepathic communication with the etheric envoys, who conveyed messages of spiritual awakening and universal interconnectedness. Bob Lazar, now a renowned physicist, was approached to analyze the energy patterns associated with these beings, leading to groundbreaking insights into consciousness and metaphysics. Another case is The Cosmic Custodians. A series of global sightings in the early 21st century hinted at the presence of cosmic custodians. Witnesses described these beings as humanoid entities with luminous auras overseeing Earth's evolution. The custodians supposedly communicated through a combination of light patterns and empathic resonance. Bob Lazar, having maintained his interest in advanced propulsion systems, collaborated with scientists to decode the extraterrestrial technology embedded in the cosmic custodian spacecraft, resulting in advancements in clean energy. The Celestial Arbiters, another case explains in an alternative timeline, a diplomatic exchange unfolded between Earth and a group of extraterrestrial beings known as the Celestial Arbiters. These beings resembled Archons in their enigmatic nature and energy-based existence, Bob Lazar, renowned for his expertise in alien technology, played a crucial role in establishing communication channels and deciphering the Arbiter's advanced technologies. The collaboration led to joint ventures in space exploration, emphasizing peaceful coexistence and mutual growth. And lastly, the Quantum Navigators, where reports emerged of encounters with Quantum Navigators, entities that manipulated the fabric of reality itself. Witnesses described these beings as shape-shifting entities with the ability to traverse dimensions. Bob Lazar, approached by a secret research group, was tasked with reverse-engineering a mysterious artifact believed to be linked to the quantum navigators. The collaboration resulted in the development of a device capable of manipulating space-time, revolutionizing humanity's understanding of physics and opening new frontiers in exploration. Bob Lazar is a controversial figure known for his claims of having worked on reverse engineering alien technology at a secretive facility near Area 51. Lazar claimed to have worked at a site known as S4, allegedly located near Area 51 in Nevada. 
He first gained public attention in 1989 when he spoke with investigative journalist George Knapp on Las Vegas television station KIAS-TV. Lazar asserted that he had been involved in back-engineering extraterrestrial spacecraft for the United States government. According to Lazar, his role at S-4 involved studying and reverse-engineering technology from a specific extraterrestrial craft, which he referred to as Sport Model. He described the propulsion system as being powered by an Element 115, a substance that, at the time, was not known to exist on Earth. Lazar claimed that this element allowed the spacecraft to achieve advanced and unconventional modes of propulsion. Archons, on the other hand, are often considered non-divine, lower-dimensional beings that exist in a realm separate from the divine and spiritual. They are sometimes depicted as rulers or authorities that emanate from a false or lower god, often referred to as the Demiurge. Their nature is more often associated with spiritual and psychic influences rather than physical form, and in some accounts, Archons are described as robotic or artificial beings, lacking the divine spark found in humans. Archons are believed to have psychic or mind-manipulating powers, influencing human consciousness and behavior. Plus, they are associated with the material world and are considered obstacles to spiritual enlightenment and gnosis, direct knowledge of the divine. These entities are seen as cosmic forces that hinder individuals from achieving spiritual awakening and self-realization, and are thought to be responsible for creating and maintaining the illusion of reality, trapping human souls in the material world and preventing them from recognizing their divine origins. In the end, while these cases and information contribute to the notion that extraterrestrial beings may be conducting experiments on humans, connecting them directly to the Archon concept remains speculative and controversial. Proponents of the Archon theory argue that these alleged extraterrestrial interventions align with the Gnostic concept of cosmic forces obstructing spiritual evolution. The beings described in abduction accounts are seen as fitting the characteristics of Archons, manipulating human consciousness and emotions for their own agenda. In conclusion, the concept of Archons and their connection to extraterrestrial beings is a complex blend of ancient mythological ideas and modern interpretations of alleged encounters. Will we ever know who or what they are? Time Traveler, from the year 2345. Okay, let me just start off by saying that I know damn well that none of you are going to believe me. After all, at this stage in time, the idea of time travel is just barely moving from something which is shunned by the scientific community and world in general to its infancy of being taken seriously. And you have so many people who action role play or LARP as time travelers who truly aren't. Hell, most of social media and message boards are full of them. Regardless of whether you believe or not, I assure you, I am a real one. I will say right off the bat that I won't give you my real name for the simple reason that I'm actually alive right now, in 2024. To be more specific, the past version of me is alive right now as well, and I can't afford to let history change, for reasons I'll go into in a minute. I also won't get into much information about the future in relation to things such as politics or such. I suppose I should give a few rather vague details which may help convince you as time goes on, no pun intended, that I'm telling the truth. It may help to convince the right people that my warning is real. For starters, 
Less than two or three decades from now, not only have the cures for cancer and other major debilitating diseases been found, but they can be administered from a simple vaccine shot. In a way, the pandemic we went through helped accelerate their development. We also ended up making death itself more of a choice than an inevitability. Life extension research being conducted right now eventually leads to both the ability to live for centuries, if not longer, but also retain our youthful bodies for as long as you wish. Which means many of you listening to this might still be alive in my time. I was one of those who jumped on the bandwagon after they finished working out the bugs out. I mean, imagine having your 20-year-old body, with all of the knowledge and wisdom you accrue from living so long, not to mention being able to do all the things which a single natural lifetime wouldn't allow. It does, however, get some pushback at first by people who worry about living beyond a natural lifetime. Gasoline is banned by the halfway point of this century, but synthetic fuel means people aren't forced into electric cars. Which I was extremely happy about, because it meant I could keep driving my Cadillac DeVille around. Although many people get hooked on the flying car craze that happens towards the end of the 21st century, I don't because I prefer staying on the ground. Trust me, mid-air accidents are not pretty. However, space travel took off after the Artemis missions put people back on the moon, a few years from now. And once the moon base and spaceports were constructed, well, it was off to the races from there. Vacations to planets like Mars, along with planetary moons such as Europa and Titan, become regular occurrences even for those not so wealthy. And as for time travel? Well, that took a little while longer than anticipated to actually work on, and that's the reason why I'm revealing this now. You see, there were many discussions that happened as people began to take time travel more and more seriously. Not only to the future, which could already be done with time dilation, but to the past. It almost became as much of a race for every country in the world as the space race in the 1960s had been. Everyone wanted to be written into the history books for eternity as the ones who finally invented the ability to travel through time itself. But people weren't really rushing like they used to when they only had a century or less to live. Scientists could work much longer without worrying about retiring or dying. During the first part of this time, I honestly wasn't a part of the endeavors myself. I'd more or less turned my life around from the second I realized I would be able to live far longer than I thought I would before. I made something of myself, and without getting into too many specific details, as again, I want my identity to remain protected, I will say, I became a best-selling author, an explorer who did everything from climbing Mount Everest on Earth and Olympus Mons on Mars to using the vast wealth I made from writing and other business endeavors to create underwater cities, similar in design to how Rapture from the Bioshock video game looked. I was living my best life from the latter half of the 21st century to the midway point of the 23rd century. But there was something that kept pulling away at my mind all throughout it. You see, I'd done so much, checked so many things off my bucket list. But there was one thing that hadn't happened yet. And if you guessed that it was that I wanted to time travel, then congratulations, you've just won a trip for two to Europa. Ever since I had been a little child, 
Growing up at the very tail end of the 20th century and the early 21st, I'd wanted to visit the past. I wanted to do things such as attend the 9th Annual Cannes Film Festival in 1956, to see Jacques Cousteau's The Silent World win the Golden Palm Award, see extinct animals such as the Barbary Lion and the Tasmanian Tiger, and travel across the oceans on the old ocean liners such as the Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. For starters, that was how they hooked me into funding much of the research. You see, a venture capitalist, whose real name I won't use, but for the sake of telling this we'll call Reynolds, approached me as one of his first big investors. He had heard me mention my desire to time travel during my book tours. Hell, I'd actually written an entire book series about it. That's why, when he called me that day, I immediately shot straight up in my chair, paying close attention. Son, he said over the video screen on my desk. I've known for a long time now that you want to visit the past. I saw a smile break across his face. Well, what if I told you that we are the ones closest to actually achieving it? And if you're willing to invest a little time and money into my project, I will allow you to become one of the first to actually travel to the past. I leaned forward in my chair. Well, then I would say you now have my attention, Mr. Reynolds. From that moment on, I was hooked. I was brought to his laboratory, where I was, honestly, shocked to find he wasn't lying. They were closer than any of the hundreds of other government or private entities attempting to master it. Even to me, it was extremely complicated to understand, but I'll try and explain what he found in layman's terms. Many scientists right now in this century believe that if you traveled near a black hole, you would experience time dilation. This means one year near the edge of a black hole would mean 80 years or so back on Earth. And it was already proven in the year 2190 when a space exploration, which had left at the beginning of the 21st century, came back looking exactly the same as they had almost a century prior. There's also a theory that black holes could work in reverse, operating as wormholes to both teleport and send people back in time. The issue is, they found out you would need a particle accelerator almost a billion kilometers long, along with a stable wormhole. Both were almost a complete impossibility, until Reynolds' team came up with a discovery. They were not only able to use a particle accelerator much smaller, but they were also able to create an artificial wormhole, a man-made black hole in their lab. Naturally, many people, myself included, were concerned about this. I asked Reynolds if there were any safeguards to prevent the artificial black hole from rapidly growing on its own. He pointed upwards at the particle accelerator hanging from the ceiling. Victor, my boy, the particle accelerator has over 90 million sensors monitoring the hole which, if they detect any kind of anomaly or rapid growth of its own volition beyond our parameters, it'll trigger an emergency shutdown which'll zap the hole into non-existence. He slapped me on the back and said, You have nothing to be concerned about. I took him for his word. So freaking stupid of myself to simply let it go at that. But I was blinded by how close we were to being able to conquer not only space, but time as well. And. In the year 2338, we finally attempted our first use of the artificial wormhole to open a portal to the past. 
nothing too far back in time, we decided for a dry run to only go as far back as one single year. Everyone, including scientists, other investors, even the janitorial staff, crowded into the lab's viewing area, anxious to see if the work, which had taken trillions of dollars and literal centuries, would actually pay off. And it did. To both our utter shock and amazement, the wormhole opened. Through the glass and through the wormhole, we could see something displayed on the other end of it. We saw the lab looking as it had the same time last year. That wasn't what made our jaws drop, though. They dropped because we saw ourselves. I could see myself being led around the chamber by Reynolds and his team, detailing me on the advancements we were now seeing the results of. I turned to Reynolds, finding him staring at the sight before us with such a sense of pride and accomplishment. I felt my own grin begin to stretch across my face. It's actually possible. I thought ecstatically in my head. After so many centuries of hoping, it's actually freaking possible. I saw Reynolds turn to me. The man's smile was wider than my own, if that was possible. Now, do you believe me, Victor? He asked. For a moment, there was complete stillness in the viewing area, and then everyone burst into cheers and applause. We began shaking each other's hands and hugging each other, congratulating ourselves on achieving first what no one else had been able to. Reynolds then told us to keep what we'd seen under our hats. There was a scientific convention coming up in a few years where he wanted to reveal to the world our achievement. We were all too giddy and too busy, basking in our own glory to stop to think about the implications of such a decision. Things such as safety protocols and proper procedures never crossed our minds. That mistake was not only the first major one, but the worst. I don't think what happened would have if we'd revealed our findings right there and then. We hit a few snags after that. You see, we could easily open up a wormhole to a few years back. Just as easily to a few decades back. Hell, even a century and a half back took a little more energy but it was able to be done, and one would be able to cross from one end of the wormhole in the present to the past and return. We created a portable version of the particle accelerator and wormhole, which allowed us to move from the present to the past. Theoretically, you could use the portable pad to keep hopping back in time further and further. However, to return to the present, you needed the main unit. No one could find a way to engineer returning into the portable pad. The problem was, the further into the past you wanted to go, the more energy was used. The particle accelerator began to short out at times, causing us to limit our explorations until repairs could be made. One of the investors, Travis, approached me after a meeting with Reynolds in the spring of 2345 to voice his concerns. What worries me is that if he attempts to open up a portal too far back in time at once, it may short out the safeguards, Vic. Reynolds had put most of us on edge as of late. If I was fixated on visiting the past, then he was utterly obsessed with it. He never let up on why, but the old photo of him and his mother, someone who'd passed centuries ago, gave me a small clue to his motives. But whenever we voiced our concerns now, Instead of the placating replies and reassurances, he'd snap, 
and almost seem like he was about to hit you. Honestly, I worry about it as well. But what can we do? I whispered back to him. Nobody besides us knows about how far along we are, and if we even try to mention anything to anyone outside of our group, God only knows what he'd do, especially where the reveal is less than two months away. Travis took a deep breath. I don't care. This is far too dangerous to keep hidden any longer. Someone has to tell someone outside. And with that, he turned and walked away. I watched him go, unaware that behind me, a tiny remote security bug had been watching us before scampering away. I mulled over his words for about a month and a half, unsure of what to do. Finally, with only a few days until the world reveal, I decided to return to the lab and speak to Reynolds. Unlike the others, the man was still somewhat friendly with me, and I felt he was still trusting enough to hear me out. I entered the lab using my personal keycard, noting that he wasn't in his office. I could tell he'd been here recently, though. The coffee warmer on his desk still glowed slightly red, and the cup beside it still had steam rising out of it. So I turned and headed for the observation area. As I drew closer, I heard voices. I couldn't tell whose they were yet, and I began to slow down as I heard what sounded like angry, almost frantic pleadings from someone. I froze, feeling a chill run up my spine. Did someone break into the lab? I looked down, seeing a discarded metal pipe from a recent repair job and picked it up. Feeling every muscle in my body tense up, I hit the button to open the pneumatic doors into the observation room and slid inside. Nobody was there, but I could now tell the voices were coming from the main room itself. I crab-walked to the glass and, slowly, peeked over it. What I saw made me nearly drop the pipe. Reynolds stood in the room, almost directly under the particle accelerator. Around him were about ten or twelve of his personal security team. That wasn't the worst sight, though. Oh. Oh, God. Travis stood laying on an old medical gurney, the types you used to see in old mental hospitals from the 20th century. His arms and legs were strapped tightly down, and he struggled to free himself from the restraints. The intercom into the room had been left on, and I could now hear what the voices were saying. Please, Reynolds, Travis shouted. You don't know what you're doing. The wormhole is too unstable to demonstrate it before a crowd, especially since you want to open it up so far back in time at once. You don't know what'll happen. For a moment, Reynolds stayed silent. Then he began to chuckle. It wasn't a normal laugh, though. It sounded absolutely insane. I've seen, quite literally, millions of horror movies in my lifetime and heard so many insane, evil laughs. Hearing one for real, though, made me shudder. He began to speak back to Travis quietly, too softly for me to hear. But whatever he said made a look of complete horror fall over Travis's face. Oh, my God, he moaned out. A feeling of dread began to course through me. Even though I didn't know what Reynolds had told him, I knew it wasn't good. The man patted Travis on the shoulder and finally said something I could make out. You'll be the first, Travis, for my own eyes to see before the big reveal, 
and nothing you, Victor, or anyone else can do is going to stop me. He began to walk towards the exit. Goodbye, Travis, he said, and then left the lab. I knew where he was going. He was going to the observation room. And God only knew what he'd do if he found me there. There was only a single door out of the room, though. I knew it was far too late to try and escape through it, though. The unhinged man was now on his way here and would see me exiting it. A rather large air duct with its cover off for repairs caught my eye, and I set down the pipe as I heard voices approach the door. One thing caught my eye before I climbed up into the vent. An object slouched in a canvas bag, and in the few seconds before I had left, I snatched it up, then climbed onto the table in the middle of the room and finally into the vent. I made it just in time, as I heard the pneumatic doors open less than a second later and saw through the opening Reynolds and his goons step in and up to the glass. A moment later, the lights in the lab began to flicker and weaken. Horror as perceptive as I ever felt surged through me. He's turning on the particle accelerator to open the wormhole. Through the glass, I saw Travis continue to struggle in vain to break free. Below me, I heard Reynolds let out a low, evil chuckle. He turned to the man to his left. Do it, he said flatly. In response, the man slammed his meaty fist onto a red button on the side of the wall. I had to slap both of my hands over my mouth to keep from screaming. Have you ever heard about something called spaghettification? It's what scientists call what happens when a black hole swallows an object in its path, whether it's a star, a planet, or in this case, swallowing a human being. The wormhole opened, and as it did, Travis began to scream. It was the most pain-like, agonizing scream I've ever heard a human being make. Then, I saw both him and the gurney begin to get pulled toward the opening black hole. That wasn't the most horrible part, though. As he approached it, both he and the gurney seemed to begin to stretch out, and at the same time, compress, as if he was silly putty being stretched and pulled on a machine. His screams began to sound off. It rose several octaves. They say that if a human being was sucked into a black hole, the process of spaghettification would be one of the most horrific, painful ways to die. I can confidently say they were absolutely understating that hypothesis. It was all over in a span of about 20 seconds for us. But I knew for Travis, what had been seconds for us had been an eternity of dying for him due to time dilation. The accelerator was turned off and the black hole wavered for a moment before vanishing. When it was done, Reynolds turned to his men and stated, Ready the plans and items needed for the world reveal? I want everything to be in place for when it's time, he said. One guard nodded. Yes, sir, we'll have it all ready. The man I'd once considered my partner and friend began to walk towards the door, when all of a sudden the guard called after him. And what if Victor should come poking his nose around here while you're gone, he asked. I felt a fresh surge of fear and horror splash through me as the question was answered. Then end him the same way we did Travis. I'll not have him interfering in this. He then held up a finger and said, Don't do that. Go out, after this, and find him. Put him in my personal jet, 
and dump him the farthest distance away possible. He deserves what's coming almost more than anyone else, and I want him to be one of the last to go. And with that, he turned and strode out of the lab. I couldn't help but shake uncontrollably in the cramped metal space at his words as the guards gathered some papers and equipment, then left the lab. It took me a long time to climb down from that vent and sneak out of the lab. I was terrified that I would be caught at any moment, but I managed to make it out unseen. I didn't go back to my house or any of my homes across the world, actually. I knew there would be henchmen at all of them, waiting for me. Instead, I did something I hadn't in centuries and returned to my poor and humble roots. First, I withdrew all the money and gold I could from my bank accounts, knowing it would be needed, and ended up taking refuge in an extremely run-down motel in the city, one which advertised itself as an authentic early 21st century motel experience. It was for technophobes, a place people who were afraid or hated technology stayed when needing to get away from their homes. While there, I frantically tried contacting anyone I could to warn them, especially after discovering a typed, printed-out speech, something I hadn't seen in centuries, stuffed into a pocket of the bag. Most of it related to the reveal speech by Reynolds, but the last part was what caused me to try calling anyone in power to warn them. Even now, the words of what turned into a twisted manifesto still filled me with such horror, I can't describe it. The manifesto read as such. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I must end this presentation with a bit of an admission. This device can, indeed, open a wormhole through time. It can allow humanity to traverse time and space, allow us to move freely to the past and future at will. But that is only a side effect. It was not what I secretly designed this machine for in the first place. You see, humanity to me, as it is now, is abhorrent. It's disgusting. An aberration. It has been ever since I was a child when my mother and father educated me on how evil a species we were, to the environment, to each other, and to the universe as a whole. Both my parents became antinatalists in their older age and passed those views on to me. At first, I didn't understand why they and those like them wanted not just humans, but all sapient, sentient life to cease to exist. But as the centuries have gone on, I've come to understand their views. Humans were never meant to live this long. Many of us, both here in the audience and watching at home, were never meant to live as long as we have. We all should have done the right thing and died a long time ago. It's disgusting to let ourselves go on. Every year I kept living was one I hated. But I know I'll never get the majority of others to agree with my views. Our views, the anti-natalists. And so, in secret, I have worked with them for centuries on a final plan. To make the choice for you, for all of us. None of you deserve to keep living beyond today. None of us, either. All sapient, sentient life in the universe needs to do the right thing and cease to exist. And none of you deserves to be able to travel through time. This is the moment for humanity, for everything to end. And it's too late to escape. May the universe be bettered by the erasure of all life. Goodbye. 
So, after reading these chilling words, I had to make tough and crucial decisions. And now, I'm going to explain why I'm revealing this to you all. How I managed to travel back to your current timeline. I'm revealing all of these things because I wasn't able to stop Reynolds. I tried desperately for days to get through to anyone in the government to warn them. I left message after message. But just like how the government operates now, it's such a huge mess in the future that either nobody got my messages or they were ignored and treated as a hoax. At least, not until it was far too late to stop the event. Because on August 17, 2345, at exactly 2.30 in the afternoon, Reynolds walked on stage in front of millions of people in the audience in the remodeled Los Angeles Convention Center, and with billions more watching all over the world, he revealed the machine, which he moved to the convention from the lab and spoke the exact words from the speech. The world gasped as it thought it had opened up a new age in humanity's existence, able to not only reach the stars, but also the future and past. I watched it on the ancient, barely-functioning smart television in my motel room as I frantically prepared. I saw the moment he launched into his manifesto speech. I saw the realization begin to spread over the crowd, the looks of excitement and glee melting into existential dread and horror. A few from the crowd tried to rush him to stop him, but his guards, ones I realized were also anti-natalists, shot them. It didn't matter whether they were men or women. They were shot like rabid animals, with no remorse. And then Reynolds pulled the lever. The screens didn't stay up long, nor did I wait around to watch. But the little I did watch will stay burned into my memory for the rest of my existence. The black hole opened, growing rapidly, far more than I ever saw it open before. It was a runaway black hole, one which might never stop growing. I saw the start of millions of people begin the process of spaghettification, the screams of pain and agony of millions of lives ending at once, to them, drawn out for a literal eternity of horrific stretching and peeling into oblivion, must be what the deepest pits of hell filled with the damned sounds like. Before the end of the day, Earth was gone, sucked into the ever-expanding black hole, Billions of lives were ended in the most horrific, painful way imaginable, and with no way to even attempt to escape, as all of Earth was inside the event horizon. And for all I knew, it kept growing. For all I knew, it ate the entire galaxy, and is on its way to swallow the entire universe, ending every sapient, sentient thing in existence. I don't know. I never saw it. You see, the thing I grabbed in that canvas bag that day, which sat along with the copy of Reynolds's speech, the thing I saw which made me snatch it up in the first place, was the portable pad. I guess the maniac never thought again about it, seeing as how he never planned for it to be properly used. And as I witnessed the final few moments of his speech, I frantically typed in a random date, a century before, into the wrist-mounted destination selector. I just barely managed to send myself back in time before Los Angeles was obliterated. It took me a little while to make it all the way back to the year 2023. I didn't dare jump more than a few decades back 
at a time after that first large jump. I was in untested waters, and I didn't want to accidentally destabilize the wormhole and end up doing to myself what had been done to everyone else. And, I found, jumping back can physically drain you. It doesn't cause any adverse effects such as cancer or tumors to grow, but it does tire you out, causing you to sleep for two or three days straight. And I should explain why I'm here in the first place. First I have to say, I am so, so sorry. I am so sorry that I was blind, easily able to be used for my money for such an evil plan enacted. I am so sorry that, whether or not I meant for it to happen, I was a part responsible. I'm so sorry I was allowed, in my pursuit of a centuries-long dream, to become a pawn. But I have a plan to try and prevent that horrific, evil act, one which makes all prior human atrocities look like Tonka toys in comparison from happening. It will require a sacrifice from me, however. I do believe it will cost me a piece of myself. A piece of my soul. You see, I won't be able to kill Reynolds, due to the wealth and power he gained from his parents' fortune. I already had thought of that when I landed back in the mid-23rd century. Which means, like people online speak about nowadays, wanting to end other horrible evil men like dictators, if they got their hands on some sort of time travel device, I must. No, I cannot bring myself to say it outright. Even for the most evil man in existence, I cannot bring myself to outright say what I feel I must do in the way that I must do it. And I know it will be one of the hardest things to live with, once I've done it. But it must be done. I'm making one final jump, to give myself a final chance of happiness and peace, for a few decades, maybe a century. I'm going to give myself one final gift. I'm going to send myself back, to the early 1900s. I'm currently collecting vintage currency and gold plus silver, things that didn't exist in my time anymore. I'm going to go see the Barbary lion and Tasmanian tiger and all the other long extinct animals. I'm going to go to the Cannes Film Festival in 1956 and shake the hand of Jacques Cousteau, see his amazing film win that award. I'm going to take many oceanic trips on the ocean liners. And I'm going to do much more since the life extension and age reversal therapies will last for another 480 years before wearing off. And all the while, I'll be preparing myself, mentally, emotionally, and physically, for the horrific act which I must do to help keep humanity, to keep everything, from ending. So all of you, along with your children, grandchildren, and so on, can live long, happy lives for as long as you want. I already wake up screaming almost every night from the horror I saw that last day in the 24th century. I know I likely will scream worse after I do this, but it must be done. I'm only staying here another few weeks just to take in a final look at a time I'd almost forgotten about. So, please, wish me luck. As morbid as that might be. I do need to warn you of one thing, though. One thing which both worries and scares me far more than any fictional monster or slasher ever could. There is one element of time travel which has been hypothesized but never proven. One that, even after traveling through time, I don't know about. The Theory of the Multiverse If someone were to travel back in time and alter the course of history in any large way, it's theorized that, instead of the timeline they're on, 
changing with it, a new, branching timeline would emerge, one where the change occurs, while the other one continues on exactly as it originally did. The person who made the change would never know that they were on the new, branching timeline. They couldn't. I pray to God, one which I still believe in, but so many in my time stopped believing in long ago that the multiverse theory is wrong, that when I do this, I'll change this universe's fate, this timeline. But, if it's right, my apologies will not be enough for what is to come. Thank you for joining us on this spine-tingling journey through the unknown. We hope you've been thoroughly entertained by the chilling tales and unbelievable experiences shared. Our exploration of the supernatural is far from over. We have more experiences, mysteries, and unearthly encounters to uncover in the future. So, be sure to return for more spine-tingling episodes. And for those who want to carry a piece of our paranormal world with them, Check out our exclusive merchandise at www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash AriseCreation73. That's the number seven and the number three. Also, check out more Arise Creations Productions material on other various platforms, including Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcast, BitChute, plus our RSS feed. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, a.k.a. X. You can find all the necessary links in the description. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. There are numerous ways to support which fuels our quest for the unexplained. You can purchase merchandise as stated before, or donate by clicking on the Buy Me a Coffee link in the description. Anything helps. Until next time, my paranormal fiends, stay curious and keep your flashlight ready. Once again, this is My Paranormality. We'll be waiting for you on the other side.